So our Bible passage this morning comes from Ezra chapter 3, verse 1 to 13. When the seventh month arrived and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, along with Jerusalem, son of Shealtiel, and his brothers began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer burnt offerings on it. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, they set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on it to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed and offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by ordinance for each festival day. After that, they offered the regular burnt offerings and the offerings for the beginning of each month and for all the Lord's appointed holy occasions, as well as the freewill offerings brought to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. They gave money to the stonecutters and artisans and gave food, drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so they would bring cedar wood from Lebanon by Joppa to Joppa by sea, according to the authorization given them by the King Cyrus of, of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned to Jerusalem from their captivity, began to build. They appointed the Levites, who were 20 years old or more, to supervise the work on the Lord's house. Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his brothers and the son of Judah, and of Henadad with their sons and brothers. The Levites joined together to supervise those working on the house of God. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests, dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord, as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. For he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple, but many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from the one of weeping, because the people were shouting so loudly, and the sound was heard far away. So far the reading. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we come before you now seeking your wisdom. We seek your spirit to be with us. We pray that you will move our hearts as we come to listen uh, to the word you have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text is from the book of Ezra. This is a smallish book. It's tucked in between Nehemiah and two chronicles. Now, it's been a little while because uh, either I've been sick or away at Synod or doing some teaching about the children at the Lord's Supper, but we are, in fact, still traveling through our Garden to Garden City series. Now, just to remind you where we're up to in the story, uh, in the big picture story that the Bible is telling, we're on our journey from the Garden of Eden to the Garden City in Jerusalem, and the story begins there in the Garden of Eden with, uh, uh, of Eden with Adam and Eve. 
And as we've seen, they disobey God. You know the story. They decide that they want to be like God. And so they eat of this forbidden fruit. And all the world is plunged into sin. And the world and the way it's supposed to work is broken. And so God makes a promise at this stage. He says, one day one would come who will crush the head of the serpent. Someday someone would come who would undo uh, the curse of sin. And as the story goes, God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to, he says three things. I'll, I'll make you into a great nation, so your descendants will become this great nation of Israel. You'll live in the promised land and all the nations are going to be blessed through you. And so as the nation of Israel grows, that's exactly what we see happening. Israel becomes this great nation. Initially they're enslaved in Egypt, but God rescues them and they celebrate the Passover in response. And then as Israel travels through the desert for 40 years, uh, God gives them, um, uh, he makes a covenant with them. Uh, and he says to them, if you will obey me, I will be your God and you will be my people. But if you disobey me and go and mix with all the foreign gods in the land, then I'm going to eventually cast you out of the land. And so as they travel through the, the, the desert for 40 years, they finally enter the promised land. And Israel becomes a place that is literally the central place in the ancient Near East, where God is at the center of kind of the known world at the time. God and his presence is in the literal center of Jerusalem in the temple. And, and from the central point radiating out to the world, uh, Israel as a nation shows the world how good it is to be under God's rulership. And so in many ways, already then, the, the, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abram uh, had, had happened. Or, already then, in many ways, the nations had been blessed through the descendants of Abraham. But as part of their agreement with God, as part of this covenant uh, that they had made with God, they agreed that they would worship him only, that they would turn from idols, that they would obey his laws. And as we have seen time and time again, in fact, that isn't what happened. Consistently, year after year, generation after generation, Israel turns from God, they disobey God, and they worship the idols, the false gods of the nations. And so the cycle begins. God would send a, a nation to Israel to discipline them. And so throughout the period of the judges, Israel would walk away from God. God would send a nation to sort of uh, overpower them and to d discipline his people. And then they would turn from their sin. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge, a deliverer, and uh, he would deliver his people. And this cycle continues, but the judges get worse and worse, and Israel gets worse and worse. And eventually, Israel demands from God that they want a king, like all the nations have. So the period of the judges uh, comes to an end, and Israel gets a king. We start with King Saul, and King Saul is, is uh, initially a good king, but then he too turns away. And then we get David, and he's a good king, but eventually he too sins. And as the story goes, Israel's kings ultimately become worse and worse as well. They turn away from God, they build uh, places of worship to the false idols, they intermingle the pure worship of God with these foreign gods, and ultimately, after centuries and centuries of putting up with this, God eventually says that the promise I made to you when we signed that covenant in, at Sinai is now going to happen. Enough is enough, and Israel is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed and the Jews are carried off into exile. 
and they're stuck there for 70 years. Israel, God's people, is actually cut off from the temple, from worshipping him. They are denied access to the temple because the temple has been destroyed. The sacrifices they were supposed to offer uh, in order to get rid of their sin could not be offered. And for the faithful Israelite, this was a terrible tragedy. In fact, it so deeply affects the people that they write a song, which is our Psalm 137, where they say, um, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept as we remembered Zion. There on the poplar trees we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us of songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy and, we, and said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion, but how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's actually from the Bible. It's not from Boney M. All right? <laughs> and so that's where we left off the story last time. Israel is in exile. The people have been cut off, carried off, uh, cut off from God. And so we're left asked the question, what about God's promises? How can this be? What, what about the promise of God to Israel that one would come and would bless the whole world? How would that work if Israel is now destroyed? And so that's where we left the story. Now something remarkable happens in this 70 years that Israel is in Persia, in Babylon. God moves the heart of a new ruler, King Cyrus. And he allows the Jewish people to return. They go back to Jerusalem and they set up shop there again. God moves his heart and he lets the remnant return. And now... And how this happens is recorded for us in these twin books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they kind of tell one story. The book of Ezra records for us how Israel, after returning out of exile from Babylon, start to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and return to the true worship of God. Now again, we have to realize that Israel at this stage has been in Babylon for 70 years. Many, most of the Israelites had died actually in a foreign country. They had been removed from the land that God had given them as their inheritance and they died in exile. Until about 70 years later, their children and a few of the remaining older folk returned back to Israel, to God. A remnant returns. And you can read about that in chapters 1 and 2. And then they settle back into into the land. But what is the first thing they do when they get there? They do this. In the seventh month, uh, when the seventh month arrived, the Israelites were in their towns and the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. Um, uh, Yeshua, son of Josadak, and his brothers and the priests, along with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to, build, uh, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses. And then it says in verse 3, They set up the altar on its foundations and offered burnt offerings for the morning and the evening on it, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. The people gather as one in Jerusalem. They rebuild the altar and they start holding the religious festivals that God had instructed them. If you read the text, it says it's according to the law of Moses or as dictated by King David, as declared by the Lord. They, they are returning to the worship of God as God had originally instructed them. They return back to a kind of true spirituality uh, and they start rebuilding the temple. The, the altar is first. But this is no mere human revival. 
God has orchestrated this whole thing. You see, Israel had to go through this period of exile. They had to go through this period of being disconnected, this period of being lost, of living in a land in captivity, of being away from God and feeling uh, disconnected from Him. This was how God was preparing their hearts for the work to come. This is the tool that God used to prepare their hearts for the work that was about to, hap- uh, to come. But friends, isn't that often how God also works with us? Where he leads us through what feels kind of like a spiritual desert. Through times when we are spiritually dry. In order to help us appreciate when we get to the spiritual oasis that really gives life. But you notice what happens when they get back to Jerusalem. How do they respond? It says they come as one man, stand united there. They return to the temple as one man. And the first thing they rebuild is the altar, the the altar on which to offer sacrifices, to, to make them clean before God. This altar in the temple that sets them apart as God's people. And there's a lesson for us here, friends. There's a There's a point for us to understand. And that is that the biblical priority is that we are to worship God. There's a principle that sits behind this. You know, a period of exile, of spiritual dryness, uh, is how often God brings people back so that they can prioritize Him once again. Periods of spiritual dryness is, how, is often how God helps us prioritize following and obeying His commands, coming back to Him in prayer and worship. And the priority in Israel's life was to be worshiping God through the sacrificial system that He gave them. But the whole purpose of humanity, all of us, is to worship God. And it seems as if Israel here has finally learned their lesson, isn't it? They have finally turned back to God, even though their houses had not been rebuilt. Even though they feared the people surrounding them, even though they had not yet built back their defenses, they could be attacked at any point in time, even though they were not safe from their enemies, the people leave everything behind in order to come together to worship God as he had instructed them. Not just at whatever time it seems good to them, But they come according to his word and they devote themselves actually to worshipping him kind of by the book. And our text makes it clear, again, according to the law of Moses, according to the covenant made with the people, according to how David had put these things in place. And friends, the lesson for us is twofold. Number one, The safest place you can be is worshipping God. The safest place you can be is worshipping God. You see, we have to appreciate what's going on here. The Israelites had spent about a four-month journey travelling from Babylon while um, when they were carried off, millions of Israelites were carried off. 
but the whole nation that returns now is only something like four, somewhere between 40 and 100,000 people. So as a nation, they had been decimated. There's very few of them left. And they're coming back essentially as refugees into a land uh, that had now been occupied by other nations. And these other nations that live in the areas around them refuse to help Israel set up shop again. And when you read the text, you realize that it's a, a few weeks after they arrive back in the town surrounding Jerusalem that they decide as one man to leave their homes to go to Jerusalem and to worship, to enter a city with no wall, no security, to leave the towns that they had come to re-inhabit, uh, leave the homes that they were probably still rebuilding to come and worship God. And not just to worship God, but to do it His way. And they start by celebrating the festival of booths. And so instead of living in their comfortable homes that, that they had been rebuilding in the towns around Jerusalem, they set up these flimsy shelters. In the festival of booths, what happens is, uh, or the festival of shelters, however you want to talk about it, they basically set up tents. And these tents, are these flimsy shelters, are supposed to remind them of how God had protected them in the wilderness uh, throughout their traveling through the desert. And it was one of the three main festivals in Israel. And even though these people had just come from Babylon, even though they had other probably very legitimate priorities in life, like, you know, rebuilding the defenses of the city or putting up their homes, getting their farms um, sowed and, uh, you know, preparing for, for life, even though they could have done all those things, they come instead to this festival to worship God to be reminded of how God had protected them, had provided for them, had cared for them in the desert. And they do so because this remnant finally gets it as Israel as a people. God is the one who looks after them. God is the one who sustains them. If God can have them carried off into exile, if God can have them be brought back from exile, if God could change the heart of the king, then the safest place to be is worshipping God. Whether the city has a wall, whether the house's roof has been put on or not, the safest place to be is worshipping God. Despite the threats of the world, despite what worldly wisdom dictates, Despite what your better sense and perhaps legitimate priorities tell you, sticking to what God has said, what he has revealed in his word and worshipping him accordingly is always best, always safest, always to be our priority. That's the first lesson. Second lesson is this. The priorities of God's people are determined by God. God's word dictates what should be our priority in life. That's why as a church we are committed to this process of making disciples. You know, a couple of years ago already we've we've de decided as a church we're going to work according to God's word, according to his revealed priorities for the church. Now this past Thursday was Ascension Day, as Harry uh, preached on last week. It is the day when Jesus leaves the earth, right? He ascends back into heaven. 
And just before he ascends into heaven, he gives the church an assignment. He says, make disciples. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and uh, teaching them to obey. And behold, I'm with you always until the very end of the age. This is called the Great Commission. As the joke always goes, it's not the Great Suggestion. We, are, we have committed ourselves as a congregation to following Jesus' commandments, to go and make disciples, to baptise the people we disciple, to teach them to obey his ways, because he is with us always. He sets the priority and we follow. God has revealed what the mission of the church ought to be, what the priority of the church ought to be. And friends, I have to say, I am so thankful to be part of a congregation that is embracing that mission. Doing, in a sense, what the Israelites in this passage are doing. Despite what the world might be saying, despite what people might be thinking, despite what, you know, uh, what people in the past have pursued, we are getting on with God's work. We are getting on with the task of making disciples and pursuing the mission that God has set for the church. This is the safest place to be. As your pastor, allow me to highlight just a few of the blessings that God has given this church just in the last few months. Our youth group program, Super Dash, is going amazingly well. We are reaching parents and children who are now in relationship with Christians who hear his word because you, as a congregation, have invited them to come along. You've embraced this discipleship priority for people coming into constant contact with God's Word. We are getting kids that attend the church on Friday that are hearing God's Word, that are hungry and say to us, we don't actually have a Bible. Can I have a Bible? Yes, you can have a Bible. I'll find you a Bible, okay? You can have a Bible. What a blessing. This Cornerstone Christianity course, you know, we talked about just before, we're going to be exploring... Uh, about Bible reading and prayer and what does it mean to be a church member. And one of the first people to sign up for that are people that are, I have no idea who they are. They have just been connecting with the church online for the last couple of months, people we have never met. Maybe they're listening now, I don't know. But they are coming and they're some of the first to sign up for that because they're hungry to learn God's Word and prayer and what does it mean to be a church person. How to apply the Bible to their lives. They are now going to have the skills to apply the Bible to their lives. What a blessing, right? God has given us two new families who have joined our church as members since the start of this year and two more for whom we are just waiting for the paperwork. So four new families in five months. That's huge, right? And every one of them has joined or is in the process of joining a growth group in our church, connecting closely, deeply with our church members. And speaking of growth groups, the groups we have are full, essentially. And, and we're at the point where we're in desperate need of new growth group leaders, and so we're going to start next term by doing some growth group leader training early next term. What a fantastic problem to have, right? Not to mention our Sila evening of praise and prayer and worship, you know, our previous Selah was uh, perhaps one of the most powerful worship experiences that I've been a part of. 
And for those that, you are, that were here, you can attest to how powerfully God worked in that space. So how good is God? But this is what happens when you align yourselves with the priorities that God gives you in Scripture. He blesses the work. Why? Because he's already doing it. And we just get to go on the adventure with him. It is a great place to be, but it's a safe place to be. And when we align ourselves, when we go on an adventure with God like this, we can respond in one of two ways. Let's look at what the Israelites did. So when the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets and the Levites descended from Asaph holding their symbols, they took positions to praise the Lord as King David had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. And then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because of the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, the family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of the temple and many others shouted joyfully. And you could not distinguish between the sound of the joy and the sound of the crying. So here is Israel. They return to the pure worship of God as he had instructed. They become his people in a sense once again. And one of two things happen. The first people respond with joy, with this kind of rapturous praise. They cannot contain themselves. They give this great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the temple had been laid. Now, let's assume there were 100,000 people there at the time. It's like the roar of a football stadium when an amazing goal is kicked, and it's that kind of sound. There's this roar of the crowd. But just think about that for a second. These are people that have just returned from exile And mostly, they are a new generation of Israelites. By and large, they are people who were born, actually, in Babylon. Most of them had been born in captivity, born in Babylon. Most of them had lived in Babylon all their life. They had been living with this sense of disconnection from the land their whole life. And when they return, they start rebuilding the temple. But it's not really their temple that they were rebuilding, because they never knew the old temple. Most of them had never seen it. They would never have experienced the sense of awe that it was meant to evoke. They were not there when God in his Shekinah glory cloud inhabited the inner space. The ark had been lost. The stone tablets that God had given Moses had been lost. Aaron's staff had been lost. All of these articles that set aside Israel are probably lost, gone in their captivity. But even so, They cannot help but cry out in this rapturous praise to God who had brought them back when the foundation of the temple had been laid. They are excited about, in a sense, stepping out in faith. They're excited at the new thing that God is doing. Great joy and excitement characterize this people, this generation who sees themselves as the fulfillment of God's promises. As he had restored the temple, uh, they praise God for who he is and what he has done and his faithfulness to them, even through bringing them out of Babylon. The joy of their worship is so loud, it's like sitting in a football stadium. They have this great joy. But that's not everyone's response. There's... The newer generation, they're very happy, but the older generation, they know 
that the new temple can never match the glory of the old. They are not rebuilding the temple that Solomon had built. The ark was missing. The staff of Aaron was missing. The Ten Commandments were missing. The glory cloud of God was missing. And it would never actually shine in the temple again. The very things that had set Israel apart in their day were missing from this building. The sense of identity they had connected with these things was lost. And they are mourning not because God had abandoned them, uh, not because God was no longer present with his people, but because these things that had defined their generation were lost. They had lost, in a sense, their identity as a people. And they're sad about that. I can understand that. But notice their identity had become wrapped up in the symbolism of God's presence. And they lost the fact, the sight, that God was actually present there with them at the time. And there's nothing wrong with fondly remembering what God had done in the former days. But that should never be at the expense of praising God for what he's doing in this day. So let's remember how good God has been to us in the past while celebrating at the same time how good God is today in the present. Because God does not change. But the tools he uses to bring people into the kingdom, to disciple the nations, to allow the church to actually fulfill that great commission, the ways in which that, ha- that happens changes as society changes. And we can remember the good things of the past and celebrate God for the good things he's doing now. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us this great lesson of Israel returning back out of Babylon uh, into Israel and how you walked with them and remained faithful to them even though they had been in captivity for 70 years. Lord, what a blessing it is to know that you are faithful, that we can always trust in your promises regardless of what things look like at the time. And we think, Lord, of, uh, of this generation that was born in, in, um, in Babylon and those that, are, that lived their entire lives there in captivity and how they must have felt, perhaps even abandoned by you. And yet, Lord, you had not abandoned them. You are faithful today, yesterday, and tomorrow. We thank you for the faithfulness you have shown to us also in loving us while we were still sinners, even as we heard in our children's talk this morning. How Jesus came to save us, to bring us out of our exile uh, from, from your presence because of our sin. Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. And as we seek, Lord, as a church, to share that with those around us, with our community, with the friends we have, those that work with us, everyone we encounter, Lord, we we pray that you will powerfully work through us. We thank you, Lord, for the good work that is already happening in this space. And while we might not always see it, Lord, we know that you are at work in the hearts of the people we interact with. And so we pray that you will give us great boldness to invite people to come to church, to small groups, to uh, various social events, 
not for our sake, but for your sake, so that they too can come to know the glory that you have, the love you have for your people, and the salvation they, that is on offer for them too, if they turn to Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, that you will work powerfully through us. Give us the courage we need to do this well. Give us the tools we need to do it effectively. But Lord, most of all, give us your spirit, we pray, to work powerfully through us, reminding us that this is not our work but your work and we are simply along for the, for the adventure. And so we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.